The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Amen, amen. Now, how many of you would like to follow that message? Uh, yeah, that's my job this morning. It is so good to be in this place. I'm, I'm looking at Miss Dorothy and LG and Charday and the Krebs and the, the Robles and it's so good to be in this place. Um, welcome, but I wish all of you that are watching and will watch throughout the week could be here with us as well. One day, someday, uh, just like we have to wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus, uh, we have to wait uh, for that day when indeed God will bring us out of exile, out of quarantine, and he will allow us to be in this place again, and that will be a glorious uh, day of rejoicing. Um, so this morning, let's go to John chapter 1, and we are looking at the story of um, John the Baptist, but we are going to uh, work really from uh, backwards, more kind of toward the middle to the end, and then back to John to really understand his significance. Um, and, and this message this morning, as we are looking at John 1, 6 through um, 13, is Jesus was born that we might be reborn. And you say, oh, that's an evangelistic message. Well, it is. Um, and yet it's also a message for those who have been reborn and those of us who are reborn but not living as if we have been reborn. Um, and so this Jesus that came um, brings life. And let's look at that now. John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Our great and glorious God, we thank you that you did not shun your creation, but you came down. Lord Jesus, you took on flesh and you were placed in a manger, and you came to set us free that we might experience the kind of life for which we've been made, that we might taste of your love, that we might experience the life of God in us, throwing, flowing through us. But, oh God, we admit this morning that, uh, that quarantine and all the effects that the world around us often wins out. It often stifles the light of the glory of Jesus. It, it awful stifles, often stifles our joy, and it often comes in such a way that we don't even, not only not look like your children, but we don't even feel like your children. And so, God, I pray that you would come by your Spirit, that you would meet us right where we are, and you would do a mighty work this morning that you would use your word to enliven us as your children to our adoption as sons and daughters. 
I pray, oh God, that you would be with the, uh, the most entrenched skeptic that might listen to this message in this place or somewhere else, that God, you might break through with your love, that you might break through with your light and your life, and you might bring someone out of darkness into light, from death to life. Oh God, I pray that you would accomplish your purposes. And Father, you know how much I need you. And so come, Lord Jesus, come. Come by your Spirit and speak through me even this morning. God, we beg you because we don't need to remain as we are. We need your work in us. Come, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. As uh, many of us know uh, that know me and my family, um, And by the way, that's my daughter who was up here in the middle, and I just have to give her a shout out. Uh, Now, Carson, you know, Edith, I love you, but, but, you know, I just, I've I've just realized she was singing, I just need to make sure everybody knows that was my daughter up here singing, so uh, proud of her. Well, I've got another, I've got two other daughters, uh, proud of them both, but our youngest daughter, uh, Amy Catherine, and her husband Tom are expecting their first baby in March. And what many may not know is the struggle they went through to, got, to get to this point. Uh, they struggled for two years with infertility and uh, saw many doctors and after a surgery or two and I don't know how many specialists and so forth, um, they announced that they were pregnant. And, and in that situation, I mean, every baby is longed for and rejoiced, but it, it just seems that in this situation, there's, there's just more longing, more fulfillment, if you will, uh, because we have waited uh, what seems like forever. Um, and, and little Gracie Ann, that's, she's pregnant with a, um, uh, our second granddaughter and um, her first daughter. And little Gracie Ann has literally no idea what awaits her. She has no clue what's coming. She has no idea the kind of love, the kind of tenderness and compassion, the kind of joy, the kind of laughter the tender mercy and times that she's going to have with her mom and her dad and her, her community, her people that are waiting and longing for her. And yet on that day in March, there is nothing in this world that she's going to resist more than all of us. <laughs> she is going to resist being born. She is going to say, all I know is what I'm experiencing and what I've been experiencing for these nine months, and this has to be it, and I don't want anything else. She is going to be fighting the love that is going to be waiting for her. Friends, John declares something truly unbelievable. He declares that we can be born of God. He declares that those of us that dwell in darkness can have the light and life of God not just dwelling around us, but dwelling in us. We can have the life of God. God can literally come and live within us by His Spirit. Why? Because Jesus came to the manger. He came to the manger, though, so that he could come to your heart and mind. He came to the manger so he could reign victoriously over your heart and your soul, your thoughts and your actions. He came that the world might see a witness, might see a testimony to the reality 
of God in you. But I want you to hear me this morning because this is what the skeptic rejects. And this is what you and I reject when God is calling us higher up and deeper into his love and into himself. And that is our nature. Our nature is to do what Gracie will do. And that is push against and not give in to the gracious love of God. John says this, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Many reject God today. And in our hearts, we try to put boundaries. We talk about boundaries a lot in our relationships with friends. What boundaries are you, have you placed in your life with God? Oh, you can have that. You can have that. But mm, no, boundary. You, you got to know your place, God. And what we don't understand is God is on the other side saying, no, you don't understand. Believe me. Because I made you. I know what satisfies your soul. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Listen to John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine <laughs> Jesus crying out those words? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. I was in Palm Springs, California uh, two summers ago, um, preaching at Ricky Jenkins Church. A lot of us know Ricky from Fellowship uh, Memphis. And, and I'd never been to Palm Springs. It's in the desert. And, um, and so as I was thinking about that, because it just, you know how when you go to new places, you probably see it. You see it through different eyes um, than those that live there. And one day I went for a run on the edge of town, and it was literally, I mean, Palm Springs, palm trees everywhere, golf courses everywhere, green, green, green everywhere, until you get where there's no irrigation. And then you're in the desert. I did a run, and I was like, I think I'm going to die. I'm out in the sand running on this trail uh, thinking I'm about to die. And so I thought about this, and I was like, how did this city came to be? Well, in 1885, a guy by the name of John Judge McCollum Dug a canal, moved there from California, thinking that the air would help his child who was sick, and he dug this canal and, and started irrigating, and what the result now is this beautiful city. Look at this picture. I've got, there it is. But look on the edge. You see the contrast where the mountains are and where the green starts? That, that's death on the other side, and that's where the water starts, where you see the green. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. Do you want to live in the desert of ruling your own life, of thinking you've got all the answers, or do you want to get irrigated? <laughs> do you want to have the life of the water of the Spirit of Christ flowing in and through you? Are you dry? Are you alone? Have you tried everything and it's not working out? Have maybe you succeeded and you've got everything you ever wanted. You've got the job you want. You've got, you've got it all laid out and it's still not satisfying. It's because you are still in the desert. But there's hope. And that's the hope of Advent. It's the hope of God become flesh. Let's look at it. The first thing we can see 
the first thing I want us to see from this passage is that Jesus did not come to make you good. He came to make you alive. Jesus didn't come to make you good. He came to make you alive. Uh, I read, a, read an article this week by Ben Sixsmith. I don't know if that's his real name, uh, but anyway. Um, he wrote an article for The Spectator reporting on the fall and the infidelity of Hillsong New York City pastor Carl Lentz. And uh, he was a celebrity pastor. He was Justin Bieber's pastor. He led Justin Bieber to faith in Christ, and uh, they were best friends um, and so forth. Um, and then um, he, he had a pretty hard fall. And, and Lentz uses, or excuse me, um, uh, ben Sixsmith uses this story as an opportunity not just to talk about Lentz, but to talk about megachurch Christianity and kind of the cool in Christianity that he calls with a twist of Christianity. And listen to what he writes. He said, still it seems to represent what I call with a twist of Christianity trend, talking about Hillsong and, and other kind of cool in churches. There is a mainstream culture within these churches and in the culture of this type of Christianity. There's mainstream culture, celebrity fashion, music, modest political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. And then he says, most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. And then he writes this. He says, I'm not, a reli I'm, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of me, instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That sadly appears to have been true of Lentz and celebrity acquaintances. Friends, this is reality. And, and all of us, I think I'm preaching more to Christians than to the skeptic this morning because we all have the tendency to want to, to be more like the world than to drink out of the well of, of the fire hose of the Spirit of Christ. Uh, we don't want to be that odd-looking dude, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness with, you know, camel's fur and hair all over his body and eating locusts and honey. You know, we don't want to be the countercultural part. We don't want to be the one that stands out. We want to be the one that fits in and who's accepted. But in reality, what Jesus is offering is so much more than, than life with a twist of Christianity. Jesus came into this world, came in, in flesh, not to add a zest to our lives, but to make us new creatures, to, get, to make Pinocchio a real boy. <laughs> he came to remake us in his love. And this is made most evident a couple of chapters over in John. Because a man by the name of Nicodemus, and the Pharisees get a bad name. He was a Pharisee, but he came to Nicodemus. Um, uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was a good man. I mean, he would be the epitome of a good man. He, like literally, people didn't look at him and kind of, you know, with disgust, oh, you think you're so good. Nicodemus was a good man. And yet, listen, 
Um, he, he comes to Jesus in, in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are t- you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't look at him and say, oh, Nick, hey, I've heard great things about you too, brother. No. He looks at this religious leader, this leader of the ruling council, leader of the Pharisees, and he says this, and truly, truly, Amen, amen. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. What? What in the world did Nicodemus need to be saved from? What sin in Nicodemus' life needed to be addressed? And, um, and this is really the question that we have to get into this morning to understand the hope of the Savior. You see... In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul describes all of us, those who are not Christian and then become Christian, not in several categories, but in two categories. You were dead in your sin, and then you became alive in Christ. There were not some that just had a little, you know, you were kind of wounded by sin. You know, sin kind of twisted you a little bit or... You know, you had a bad habit or, you know, I mean, you, you know. No, you were dead in your sin. You were rebelling against God. This is what we see in Ephesians 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. You're telling me that Nicodemus in all his goodness, in all his works of mercy, in all of his kindness and all of these things that, that, that he was following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Nicodemus was a son of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How Could Nicodemus be dead in his trespasses and sin? What Paul is doing in Ephesians and what Jesus is doing in Nicodemus' life is he is showing him that the nature of the darkness of spiritual death is relational, not just ethical. The sin behind your sin, the darkness of your sin, the, the horror of your sin is not what you do, but why you do what you do. That's what the Scriptures are saying Listen to it. Note that the relational language of Ephesians 3, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air. This is relational stuff. And and if all we have to do is go back to um, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 to get it. What was the sin that, that sunk us all? Why do we live in the mess that we're in? Oh, It was abortion. Oh, it was homosexuality. Oh, it was divorce. It was pornography. It was eating a piece of fruit that God said not to eat. What's at stake there? What what was at stake there? The sin behind the sin was man putting this fence against God and saying, I'm going to rule my life, and I'll tell you what's right and wrong, and you're not going to tell me what's right and wrong. How does that work in your marriage? How does that work in your household? Children, parents, how does that work in your place of business? You see, 
It's more, when you have someone who, you know, uh, teach this way, no, I'm not teaching that new math, I'm going to do my math. What, what's at stake there? Yeah, pride and arrogance, but what's at stake? What's at stake is submission to authority in the entire structure of relationship in the workplace. That's what is happening here. The sin behind the sin was man's rebellion saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. See, we were created to be dependent. God is creator. Why does Paul, um, excuse me, why does John talk so much about Jesus as creator? Um, He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Why? Because Jesus knows how life is supposed to work for us to be utterly fulfilled. And life does not work. The essence of death is me telling God how the universe and how my life and how my world should be. But beyond that, because I don't think you would have seen kind of that clenched fist in Nicodemus' life. Evidently. But God saw it. Because here's what Nicodemus was doing. Nicodemus said, he, think, think about the evil of this. Nicodemus didn't say, hey, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I'm going to choose whatever gender I am. I'm going to use my money how I want to use my money. None of that. He said, this is how you, God, are going to reward me. I'm going to be good and obedient, and you're going to make my life work out. Isaiah was pointing to this in chapter 64, verse 6 of Isaiah. Isaiah said, we have all become like one who is unclean. And listen to this. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. What is that polluted garment? You've heard me say it, and you're already cringing if you know it. <laughs> it it's, 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 it's horrific. It's the cloth that a, that a girl would use, a woman would use in menstruation. That's what the commentaries tell us. That's the illustration that Isaiah gave. That's what your good works are like. Why? Because you're trying to put God in your debt. We can't get away from this. Um, Rachel and I have a kind of a, a rule that whoever cooks doesn't have to clean the kitchen. Amen. There you go. But you know, we're human. You know, sometimes she'll cook and and clean the kitchen. Sometimes I'll cook and clean the kitchen. Well, I can't say what's going on in her heart when I do both, but I can tell you what's going on in my heart when I do both. Um, when I do both, and she doesn't acknowledge that I've done both, when, when she hasn't hired, you know, the University of Memphis band to come marching through our house, you know, drumming my praises, um, I, I'm, just, I'm aghast. I'm like, I'm just kind of watching. I'm just kind of waiting. You know, we're talking about things. We're having a conversation, but I'm waiting. We're, we're, you know, heading to bed, but I'm waiting. Next morning, you know, I'm waiting. See, that's my heart. And that is the heart of religion. Religion doesn't save you. Why? Because it is evil. It puts God, it's still trying to put God in a box and you running over it, you using him as your puppet. Oh, I did this. Oh, I stopped doing that. So you got to reward me now. Oh, I've been living my life for you and you strike me with COVID? You take my job from me? You give me this, this spouse who is not appreciative of me? 
That's religion, folks. It's the heart of religion. And it is as evil as anything you see as darkness. It is as wicked and repulsive as any sin you think um, you can think of. Your, your pet sin that you just can't stand in other people's lives. Let me tell you something. You repulse the holiness of God with your goodness. When you think you're going you're gonna to somehow control the God of the universe and that he somehow owes you, do you see it? That's the root of sin. That's, that's, that's what we have to repent of. And yet, secondly, the essence of this new life, when we do acknowledge this is our sin, the new life is reconciliation and intimacy with God. I may or may not be absolutely obsessed with attachment theory, psychological attachment theory. Say, so what in the world are you talking about? Well, you've heard me probably a couple times talk about Adam Young's podcast. Just write it down, Adam Young, season one, uh, episodes five and seven. I think you'll benefit. Um, but he talks about attachment, and, and it's really, it's looking at the, the impact of your attachment to your mother, father, caregiver the first several months of your life, first year, couple years of life. Here's a definition. The central theme of attachment theory is that primary caregivers who are available and responsive to an infant's needs allow the child to develop a sense of security, okay? The infant knows that the caregiver is dependable, which creates a secure base for the child then to explore the world. That is secure attachment. I have a person who is uh, attuned to me. When I cry, they come. When I'm hungry, they feed me. When I'm nasty, they change me. You know, they, they are regulating. They are giving me the security that I was created for so that now I can understand the world. Well, what happens when you don't get that? When you don't get that, you develop insecure attachment that can look like ambivalent attachment, avoidant attachment, or um, disorganized attachment. Um, and uh, call me, we'll have a little book club or something and, and talk about that. But in reality, what this has shown me and what I can, because I may or may not suffer from one of these insecure attachments, um, what I have learned and what I'm learning is, is uh, just the reality that I was made for relationship of deep connection and love, and so were you. And we can't live without it. It's like running a car without oil. Or you might get down the road a little bit, but I promise you, I promise you, it may be, oh, that preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. I've gone a quarter of a mile. I'm feeling good. Just wait. Just keep rolling. Keep rolling. You see, we were made for love. This is the context. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be morally upstanding people that everyone would respect. No. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The blessing of Christianity, dear friends, is not what God gives you, but what God makes you. 
He makes you a son. He makes you a daughter. He sets you up like my, my, my son-in-law and daughter are setting up little Gracie Ann. That is the longing of God's heart. Why do you think they have it in their hearts? Because they image the God of glory in his posture toward you and me. You, that is what you're rejecting if you reject Christianity. And dear friends, that's what you're rejecting when you are not living out of the reality of what God has done for you and the relationship that you have with Him. Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. It's relational. Slavery, to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By who? We have to have the Spirit of God in our hearts that we might cry out, Daddy, Father to God, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Why? Because it's unbelievable. God has to part the waters of of doubt and skepticism to say, you are the child of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This gets at the relational nature of Christianity. Justification is the legal. He he talks about you have the right to become children of God. What he's talking about there is our justification. How do we become children of God? Jesus came down in the flesh, lived the perfect life that we could never live. Why? Because he was representing Richard Reeves before every aspect of the law, and he completely obeyed it. So that now God... As I trust Christ, God can accept Jesus' record of righteousness and obedience and perfect performance, and he can take Richard's performance of utter sin and darkness, put it on Jesus, uh, punish Jesus for eternity in hell on the cross, and then come back and love me from now and treat me no less and no more, love me no less and no more than he loves his own son. That's the legality of justification. That's the right that I have. I can declare right now, God, you must love me. Because of Jesus, not because of my goodness, because of Jesus. Oh, how glorious is that. And friends, um, you know, this is uh, the Spirit of Christ. This is what He must do in our lives. He must soften our hearts to say yes to God. John Wesley, hark the herald angels sing. What did he say? Born to give them second birth. What does that mean? Born to come into the family of God and to relish and live your life before the face of God who loves you, who adores you because of Jesus. He's the one that made you and nothing else can satisfy you. You see, friends, you were made for the attachment of God. But if you reject that, you're going to find that attachment in something else and it's going to destroy you. It's going to shrink your soul. I think the most tragic thing that can happen to an individual is to say that they're content without God. You know why that's sad to me? Because you were made for so much more. What you've you've done is you have shrunk your expectations and your desires into a little tiny box. When God, when God comes, he created you not to even have a box to experience abundant life, to have rivers, the rivers of the Spirit of God flowing through you, never to feel alone, never to feel insignificant, always to feel love that you might pour out. And that leads us into our third point. 
Those who taste of love give love. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. There's one time it said, came as a witness to bear witness, second time, about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So what was John's life purpose? Witness. Testify. Why? Well, this is what's kind of strange about John. The Holy Spirit, he literally never remembers a day he didn't know the love of Christ because he was converted in the womb of his uh, mother, Elizabeth. John the Baptist had one life purpose. It was to declare the reality that he was a child of God, to live as if he were that child of God, to be so wrapped up in it and convinced of it, to, to have that connection with God so entrenched in his life that he could stand as a lone witness to a hostile world about the love of Jesus and about the truth of his kingdom and his love. That was his purpose, but friends, that's your purpose too. You see, it was because of his connection with Christ that he could deliver the message that he did and listen to the message that he gave. Um, Luke chapter 3, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, John the Baptist, you brood of vipers. Now, you got to be pretty secure in who you are, okay? Uh, You've got the religious people of the day. You are standing against the Mississippi River of religion publicly. You brood of vipers. (laughs) Unbelievable. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you hypocrites, you religious people who are judging everybody around you. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God didn't come to make you reborn that you might be cool and give you a twist of Christianity. He came that you might what? Listen to these verses. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. My, my, my. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him then, and what shall we do? And he, being the third in that line, you know, you got to be pretty bold. All right, we've heard the other two answers. I don't know that we're ready, but okay, let's ask him. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. That's how these guys made a living. That's how they paid for their second home. That's how they took that glorious trip to Italy. And be content with your wages. What a, how do you do that? The only way to do that is to be securely attached to the God of the universe through the work of the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you have that kind of attachment to God this morning? Do you know that is what you're made for? Come to him. Give yourself to him, Christian and non-Christian. Give yourself to his love and live out of that love. Then money doesn't have to be, you don't have to fear giving away your money because you know who your daddy is. 
You don't have to fear being, doing illegal things because you know who your daddy is. Come to Jesus. Give your heart to him. Share the love. Tell others about the hope that is within you. Because when you taste of the love of God, you want to tell somebody else about it. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you came not to make us um, good, but to make us alive. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to you. Would you uh, renew us in faith? Would you bring some to faith for the first time? Make some born again and help the rest of us to live out of the adoption that we have as sons and daughters. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, respond to this uh, glorious message by bringing tithes and offerings to your king because you can and because you understand the value of your adoption and your sonship. Amen.